This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. We've been beginning each hour of this Independence Day special talking with Neil King Jr., who wrote a book, American Ramble, about his walking tour from Washington, D.C. to New York City. He went through a lot of side roads to meet up with Americans, talk with them about today, and also see a lot of what's left of early America. I think the heart of the book and the walk and another moment that would not have happened if you had just driven through America happened when you stumbled on a softball game in Pennsylvania. They're not a softball game most Americans would have imagined. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, that was in many ways the heart of the walk. I was in at that point Lancaster County, which is, you know, this county famous for this huge 500-year-long ongoing social experiment called the Amish and the Mennonites. And, you know, they had come to the United States during the Reformation, um, pushed out of um, out of Europe for a whole bunch of reasons of, you know, all various forms of persecution, found this beautiful uh, land there to become farmers. And they, this goes on to this day. And the day that I was walking along, I'm coming up this road through these beautiful, you know, farmhouses and farm country. And I look over, I'm passing the schoolhouse and I see this young woman with a bonnet on her head and a long floral dress and a baseball glove on her right hand. And I hear the whack of a bat. She backs up, feels this hard hit fly ball and throws it back the other direction. I'm like, what is going on here? And I go into this playground and there are all of these eighth and ninth graders, um, all the young women dressed in that fashion, playing these two incredible, beautiful, aggressive games of softball. And at the end of the game, they all came over towards me and their teacher, Neil Weaver, was with them. And he asked me what I was doing and what had brought me there. And I told him and his immediate response was, kids, let's gather around and hear what Mr. King has to say. And I started to talk to them about my own observations about you know, how they live their lives and the simplicity with which they go about things and the beauty that they had all these bikes that weren't locked sitting there and 
all of this stuff. And and then at one point, one of the young women stepped forward and said, Mr. Weaver, what if we were to sing for Mr. King? And they invited me into their school and I went downstairs. And they all got on the riser and it was just a magical moment. They sang these two hymns for me. just, you know, kind of their expression of thanks that I had come there, that I had taken this walk. And the whole of it was just so really amazing and beautiful and simple. And then I had a great conversation with Neil afterwards about, you know, what makes the Mennonites Mennonites. And he sort of talked to me about the simple tenets of their faith. And, and you know, what's amazing about that experience was that I was there for maybe a half an hour, all told. And yet I've remained very much in touch with them. I was up there after the book came out. I did a book event in that same basement of that same school. And 300 or so people came, fathers, mothers, grandparents, the kids themselves. The young woman who had suggested they sing for me was there. You know, 50 or so of the kids got again on the risers and sang songs. And, you know, I formed this bond with this group of people that's very genuine just because I happened to be walking by one day and noticed them playing softball and they sang for me. And it was just a great kind of exchange between all of us. And um, I guess it just goes to show what, what can happen if you walk out your door and are open to the experiences that you encounter along the way. So what goes through your mind? You've been on this walk. You've seen an unexpected softball game. Now, these children are singing hymns to you and emotionally as well as intellectually what's going on in neil king jr (laughs) uh well i will confess to having a little more than just teared up at that whole experience when they sang like that because it was just such a just this pure act of thanks and gratitude on their part and um you know it was great after right afterwards i said to neil weaver the teacher i was like neil how do you how many of these kids are just going to leave and go elsewhere and tell me how, you know, what it is that I should understand about um, what it is that Mennonites think. And he talked a bit about this concept of nonconformity, which he described as being an act of them deciding what it is that they should do in terms of conforming to the norms that we all live by, you know, modernity, the internet, movies, popular culture, et cetera. And he quoted this line that really stuck in my mind, that was actually a line of St. Paul to the Romans, which is, um, be not conformed to this world, but transform yourself through a renewal of your mind. You know, that that line itself, when he said it, and I was like, wait, 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 what was that again? Go by, you know, did you say that to me again? Became kind of a, I don't know, sort of a framing device of sorts for the whole of the walk, this idea that you don't need to build yourself just automatically by the norms that the society places on you, but can kind of continually renew yourself or transform yourself through an ongoing act of renewal. You know, the whole of that encounter with them. And um, in a lot of ways, my going back and spending more time with them and really coming to appreciate the various ways that they look skeptically upon the things that we all take so naturally has been has been a great kind of, I guess, renewing experience. Since you're away from your family, 
during all of this. Did did you find connections with people you know to be reassuring, or were they something of a break of it's me, Neil King Jr. alone meeting people I've never met, never would have met, and experiencing things in a different way? How how was that? You know, a lot of people since the walk and since the book came out will ask the obvious question like, well, did you end up thinking more highly of us as a people and the country and more optimistic about America? And, you know, one thing I'll say for sure is that I certainly came away feeling a lot more upbeat about what you can find out there in terms of, um, you know, the welcomingness of our fellow Americans. I mean, I, I think because I did go with this kind of radical degree of open-mindedness and enthusiasm, that helped um, forge so many friendships along the way so that there were at least a dozen people in the span of 26 days that I formed these ties with that I remain friends with to this day. And um, I'm sure I'll remain friends with for, for the rest of my life. And- you were very cognizant of the fact that this is not something every American citizen could do and get the same kind of openness and the same kind of reaction. Yeah, I talk about that a lot in the book, and I, I thought about it a lot during the walk. I met you know, a white man of a certain age that comes off in a certain way, and I'm going to stir, you know, naturally, I guess, less suspicion from people as I go. Um, and I, you know, that sense of kind of belonging and that's and the feel that you might, you know, belong in different places as you arrive in them. Um, is not certainly universally granted. A lot of people who go on such journeys, whether in a camper like Dayton Duncan did for Out West or uh, for TV, as Charles Geralt did for this very network uh, year after year after year, did you look to find America, find yourself, looked for one, found the other, went out there with no preconceptions just to see what would happen? You know, I would say probably all of those things. I definitely wanted to go out and get a sense of like, okay, uh, what's the state of the country? What's in, you know, I'm not, this is not a scientifically, statistically accurate assessment. There is no such thing really. But uh, I wanted to walk through a really important part of the country and get a feel for what the state of mind of the citizenry was and and also see, you know, what the impact was on me and my spirit over that span of time where I wasn't filling my ears with, um, you know, music or anything else, but just uh, what I heard along the way and what I saw. And, you know, both those experiences, the personal side of it and then the more kind of national communal side of it were really quite potent and uplifting and, um, and valuable. And, you know, did I come away with some vivid proof that our better days are ahead of us or anything like that? That's a hard thing to, to get to as a conclusion. But I certainly came away with a very strong sense that there's a different place and a different country out there outside of the headlines, outside of the sort of alarming things that we might be told when we open our computers. Um, if you just go out and take the time to to walk it and, and look at it and take it in. The book is American Ramble, A Walk of Memory and Renewal. And it was lovely both in this conversation and in the book to take that walk with you in what way I was able to. And I'm sure our listeners will find the same. Neil King Jr., thank you for being with us. Gil, it was a great pleasure. I really appreciate it. Coming up, more of the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. Here's more of the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. 
There was, of course, no radio during the Revolution, but there was plenty of music in colonial life. Now, we covered the origins of Yankee Doodle some years ago on this annual get-together, but what else was there? There were other songs, though many of us think of that era as some think of the Civil War nearly a century later, when Ulysses S. Grant said of himself, I only know two songs, one is Yankee Doodle, the other isn't. I was introduced to the music of this period by a singer and instrumentalist, Linda Russell, who often played at Federal Hall, the site of George Washington's inauguration as our first president. She performs constantly still at historic sites and even at Carnegie Hall with two of my folk heroes, Tom Paxton and Mike Seeger. It's good to talk to you again. It's great to talk to you. In terms of moving people during the revolution pamphlets, and we're talking a lot about Thomas Paine and other parts of this show, and music. I mean, these were the things that that anybody could have access to, get excited about, and be moved by. Yeah, there's there's so many ways that music was part of people's lives then. We don't think about that. We just listen to it now. But then it was just part active part of their lives. Um, songs, uh, well, lullabies, um, songs to work by, you know, sea shanties are a great example that people were singing while they worked. Um, and um, expression of feelings, vital during times of turmoil like the revolution. Sad feelings as well as, as, as angry feelings. The music fueled all of that. It, it helped them. And it, also, it, it really propelled the war because certain songs called broadsides, broadsides were singing newspapers. They were songs that told you the latest news. And people found out the news by gathering. I mean, think of it. They're living in their little houses. They don't know anything of the outside world unless they go to a center such as the tavern. Taverns were places not just to, to, to drink and eat, but they were places to commune and to find out what your neighbors were thinking and to see travelers who came through who had lived in Massachusetts, maybe, and they knew what the British were like. And so in taverns, people were not just singing drinking songs, they were singing broadsides and broadsides that told them the latest news. It might be a battle, it might be a political opinion, put into song, tacked on the tavern wall, and you just ripped it off the wall and said, here it is, and you sang the latest song with your neighbors. And one of the other powerful things at that time is you did not even have to be literate. You did not have to even be able to read to hear a song and hear the news that way. Yes, absolutely. It was a very um, and and the and people knew already learning that way because they sang ballads in their own homes, ballads that had been passed down through their heritage. These were the that was the literature of the time. Not that many books, but lots of songs that you know the ballad of Barbara Allen that told a story of the troubles of lords and ladies. Things like that were just part of everyone's experience. So they were much more eager to sing than we are today. Yeah, much more able to play instruments. It's interesting. I mean, some people know about music of the era, but generally it's the classical music. In 1776, Mozart was alive in Europe. Beethoven was only six years old, but symphony orchestras had not really happened in America yet. The money to support an undertaking like that didn't exist. And though some people did play, you know, classical chamber music, quartets, sonatas, trios, and such. Then as now, it wasn't so much the music of the people or the instruments that that people would play. I know you play guitar, 
hammered and uh, mountain dulcimers, penny whistle, and limberjack, which you may have to explain to people. Limberjack is the best out of all of these incredible instruments. Limberjack is simply a wooden man on a stick, <laughs> and and th- that was always made you know, by your dad, or it was just, it's a homemade folk instrument of early America. And you sat on a wooden paddle and tapped that paddle. And this man on on the stick, you hold him lightly on the board. And when the tapping begins, his feet start to go and he is doing the jig. And uh, I play this in, in grade schools, the children are just floored by it. They love it beyond belief. So limberjacks, and there are many names. They're, they're made, they were made all over the country into the 19th century, deep into the early 20th century. And I've found them in, in, in antique stores. Um, so they're really a great folk instrument of the time. You talk about broadsides where the news of the day and opinions of the day were given in songs. Some people are familiar when broadsides kind of made a a comeback in the 50s and 60s into the 70s with Pete Seeger, Phil Oaks, among others, Tom Paxton, who you sang with, writing such songs or bringing traditional songs back. What kind of broadsides were there back during the revolution? What stories were they telling? They were, some broadsides were simply literally news stories, a murder, a shipwreck, things that you would find, you know, uh, on on front pages today in the crime section. Um, But then others were about, as we got towards the revolution, about um, taxes on the tea, young ladies in town, and those live round, wear none but your own country linen. A song like that, a broadside, was trying to get women to not buy any more British imported cloth. The, the, the imported British things in the 1760s and early 70s were just not to be purchased because we needed a boycott of British goods. So songs, broadsides, um, propelled that that, you know, spread the news of, of boycotts like that. Speaking of that, I want to play a little bit from one of your many recordings of a song in, uh, written, I think, in 1775, What a Court Hath Old England. Let's listen to this. There's no telling where this oppression may stop. Some say there's no cure but a capital chop. And that I'm sure is each American's wish. See, they drench them with tea and deprive them of fish. Very down, down, down. Okay, down. in there is a reference that may escape a lot of people now, even people who think about about the revolution. Deprive them of fish and drown them in tea. Okay, drown them in tea people get the Boston Tea Party. The British are trying to make you buy British tea instead of the stuff the colonials were selling and all of that. Deprive them of fish has to go to something it isn't really talked about much anymore. One of the things that got people from New England to get out and fight weren't so much, you know, the writings of of John Adams and such. It was the fact that the British and the Sugar Act had decided that most of the dried fish processed in New England could not be sold. You know, it, it had to be stuff from England. This affected people's lives. This is the kind of thing people were really mad about, almost more than free speech and religion and all the things that we think of with the revolution. Yes, it was really 
I mean, where were we? We were were a coastal um, um, entity here. And so, so many were just thriving by, by fishing and our fishing rights were being taken away by the British. We were being told where we could fish, where we couldn't, what could be done with it. It was too much for us. It was one of the things that just put us over the top with it all. Yes. And in fact, to this day, and some people taking tours may wonder, what, what, what is that? If you go to the Massachusetts legislature, you look up above it in the building, and there is what they call the sacred codfish, because <laughs> codfish, as reflected in this ballot, was one of the things that got people actually out to fight because they were fighting for how they made a living. Fascinating, yes. Yes, it really, it's great to look at history through even the art of the time. You're going to get a whole different idea of what mattered to people. Let's talk about uh, some of the other songs that you've recorded. And of course, there's many, several albums, and we'll tell you at the end about Linda's website where you can go and find them. Uh, Buttermilk Hill, also I think more popularly known as Johnny Has Gone for a Soldier. Um, Interesting song. Every tear will turn a meal. Johnny's gone for a soldier. It's an amazing song. It originated in Ireland with Irish recruits in the French and Indian War. It came to America with those recruits in um, French and Indian War days, and it is completely um, was completely in in, in Gaelic. Um, but it had such a beautiful tune that eventually the people uh, uh, settled in the Hudson Valley heard this song and they made it their own. And they, um, the only thing left of the Gaelic is the nonsense chorus. Shul, shul, shularoon, shularak, shak, shula barbaloo. means nothing now. But then it was Gaelic. It meant, come away with me, my love. It's a, the whole song is a lament about soldier going off to fight and the woman who has to wait and worry and wonder as she sits on Buttermilk Hill. And Buttermilk Hill is a real place. As I said, this song kind of in America was born in the Hudson Valley, thanks to the uh, people there hearing the Irish sing it. And um, Buttermilk Hill is near Terrytown, New York, overlooking the Hudson. So it is a very local New York song. We have more to talk about early America with Liz Covart coming up on the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. Welcome back to the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. And we've been listening to singer Linda Russell and talking with her about early American music. She's made a specialty of music of the Revolutionary War era, and we've been hearing her talk and sing about it. Let's play a little bit of Soldier, Soldier, Will You Marry Me, which also, to a certain extent, is kind of about what what war does to love. Let's listen to a bit of that. Soldier, soldier, will you marry me with your musket five and how can I marry such a pretty girl as you when I've got no shoes to put on? So off to the Okay, tell me about this song, because this song is is both uh, is is both a love song born out of war and and also uh, kind of demonstrates the problems of a relationship during war. <laughs> it's got a payoff at the end. <laughs> yes. 
is a great one. It was a British song. We did that a lot. We stole British tunes and made them our own. Uh, but this was perfect. It had um, come to America during the French and Indian War. And what it is, really, it's a, it's a song to make people laugh in their very hard times. Soldier, soldier, will you marry me with your musket, fife, and drum? How can I, when I have no shoes to put on, when I have no hat to put on, when I have no coat? He goes through the list. He is destitute. He is a soldier in America's revolution in the time when you had to sleep out in the cold and freezing and, 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 and snow drifts and your shoes wore out. Um, they could trace soldiers at Valley Forge with a bloody footprints that they made in the snow. So many of them were nearly barefooted at places like that. They were so hard. So, and they're clothes in rags. So this is what the song is really about. And then a girl who falls in love with this ragged soldier and, and just, this is my chance. Let me, I'll, I'll bribe him. I'll get whatever I can here. Let me see if I can get this guy. So she offers him all the things that he needs, the shoes, the coat, the hat, until the end yes and the end yes. <laughs> the end is simply um how can i marry such a pretty girl she wouldn't have got no when i've got a wife and 12 children at home and he scampers off fully clothed and happy thank you for the clothing <laughs> yeah see ya yeah see, see you around you mentioned that very often we during the revolution and even later repurposed British songs. And even though we're not talking about the revolution now, we're talking about another war with the British, the War of 1812. Uh, still, our national anthem has has a similar story. Yeah, our national anthem was, uh, Star Spangled Banner, of course, was written from then the War of 1812. Francis Scott Key had gone, um, we, we were in the middle of the war, and his friend, a doctor, had been um, imprisoned by the British and was on a prison ship. And he really was just sort of caught up in the whole thing. And Francis Scott Key knew he didn't deserve to be a prisoner. So he went to try to seek his release. He went on board the ship and um, they, um, they, um, he talked to the admiral and the general of the British. It was just all this going fine, nice dinner, fine Madeira. And finally they said, yes, all right, we will release your friend. However, we won't, can't release him now. And we can't release you now because we're about to bombard Baltimore Harbor, Fort McHenry. And so that is why Francis Scott Key, all night long, was himself a prisoner, watching his country being attacked and the bombs bursting in air and all of this. And that is why that line, um, uh, our flag was still there, that the sun showed the flag there in the morning and he knew they were okay. And it was, yeah, so that was astounding. He wrote that. Just like uh, within days it was done and he put it to, as you said, a British drinking song, <laughs> which is odd. Uh, and that's why, well, it, I couldn't have been easy to sing in the tavern with all of those ups and downs of this tune. But the British drinking song was called to an anacreon in heaven. And it's got just amazing obtuse words and uh and it uh, lives today, but it's um, not not many are singing it. <laughs> not, ma not many. The National Anthem, but Star Spangled Banner took it over. Here's a bit of The Road to Boston. Now, this was a marching song, of which there were many. Yes, that soldiers never walked anywhere. They marched. If they lost a battle or won a battle, they marched back to camp. Marching kept 
discipline with music. Music kept the discipline, kept the spirits up, kept your head high. It was just, I don't know what the army would have done without music at this time. Um, it, music was in the air all through the military constantly. And of course, in the middle of battle, there was music because um, tunes were there to signal. You're, you couldn't hear your commander if he shouted charge. What if you couldn't hear him? What are you going to do? Wander around saying, what did he say? Nobody did that because next to the commander were the musicians who played the tune that meant charge or played retreat. Every soldier knew those tunes and they better know them because their life depends on it. For people who want to share your music, hear your albums, know more about you, what's the website? It is lindarussellmusic.com. Linda, a pleasure. Oh, it was just great. Coming up, more of the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. We're back with much more of the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. September 15th, 1776, British troops captured Lower Manhattan, which they will keep for the entirety of the Revolutionary War. But four days later, after they take it over, there was a devastating fire that destroyed much of the city. It is a big event at the start of the Revolution. Question is, who started it? Was it colonials because George Washington had to hightail it out of town after grievous losses on Long Island or an accident or even the British trying to teach the colonial citizens a lesson or Hessian soldiers so they could kind of raid the homes under the cover of smoke? Oddly enough, this is a question that has been somewhat left a question by historians, though we may finally have a good, strong answer from Benjamin Karp's book, The Great New York Fire of 1776. Good to have you with us. Thank you. I'm, it's great to be here. Yeah. I, Washington had to leave because after the battles of Long Island and Brooklyn, he could stay in Manhattan. It's pretty much impossible to defend as the Dutch found that when they built a wall to keep the British from invading by land. The British simply sailed around the stupid thing, sort of their Maginot line of the 1600s, but very thin with a river on each side. Uh, Washington really had no choice but to get out. Yeah, once the British have Long Island and they've got all of these British warships in the harbor, uh, it's going to be almost impossible for Washington to defend Lower Manhattan. So he decides to get out to live to fight another day, which is exactly what happened, although the days turned into years, which brings us to the question that's always been the matter of some debate. How did it start? How did it start? Yeah, I mean, we talked about Washington's decision to leave, but then he also has two choices about leaving. Is he going to leave the city intact so that the British can enjoy it as a naval base and British headquarters and as a marketplace for loyalist citizens? Uh, or is he going to burn the place behind him? Uh, and people have been talking for months about possibly burning New York City whenever the Americans had to evacuate it. Uh, and strategically, Washington himself knew that burning New York City might be a really good idea. He asked Congress for permission to burn New York City. General Nathaniel Greene said we should burn New York City. Uh, John Jay said we should burn New York City. Washington took that question twice before the Second Continental Congress, but both times they rejected it. Yeah, at least in the surviving correspondence that we have, Congress said, you know, make sure that no damage is done to New York City when you leave it. Uh, and Washington appears to in have interpreted that as uh, as their decision that he shouldn't burn it. Uh, now, that that may just be that he was looking for plausible deniability. Uh, you know, I don't want to sound like too much of a conspiracy theorist, uh, but um, it is possible 
right, that either Washington just disobeyed Congress. Uh, it's possible that he just said, well, that's too bad. Well, will no one rid me of this meddlesome city? And that one of his enterprising officers went ahead and did it themselves. Uh, or it's possible that his own men disobeyed him and said, well, all right, Washington can say what he wants, but we really hate New York City and we're going to burn it to the ground rather than let the British have it. And there were rumors in May of that year, and again, the fires in September, that the colonials would do this. So the people living in New York City, both the people loyal to Britain, many of whom had gotten out when the Continental troops were for a few months in control of the city. And uh, of course, the people who supported the revolution, who saw the British were coming back, a lot of people had left town by then. Yeah, the town is way emptier than its normal population of about 25,000 people. It's hard to think of that. 25,000 people, that was it. Yeah, there are college campuses nowadays that are bigger than New York City was in seventeen. And before people go, oh, but this would be terrible if the colonials had done this and all, this was a, you know, and makes the British look good. This was a tactic the British had also used. Well, I mean, so that's one idea is that maybe uh, Americans burned New York City out of revenge. I mean, the British had burned Charlestown, Massachusetts during the Battle of Bunker Hill on June 17th, 1775. They had burned Falmouth in Maine in October. Uh, you know, uh, there, there were rumors that the British had been the ones who burned most of Norfolk, Virginia, which was the sixth largest town in the 13 colonies, although really it was American troops who had done most of that work. Uh, so again, yeah, I mean, and it's in the Declaration of Independence that King George III has burnt our towns. This was one of the grievances against the king. So, uh, you know, yeah, the British also burned towns during the Revolutionary War. Uh, and I think it may have been in the minds of some American troops that, that that burning New York City would be an opportunity for revenge. There was even a confession by a man, I think, in June of 1777 that he started the fire. Yeah, that's right. I mean, well, there were, there, first of all, the British caught a number of people on the spot during the fire uh, and, and killed a few they, by either throwing them into burning buildings or, uh, or, or skewering them with bayonets. So the British had caught people in the act of setting this fire. And then, yeah, interestingly, a year later, um, a spy named Abraham Patton, uh, the British catch him in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and they bring him to the gallows. And he confesses not only to have been involved in the espionage activities that they had caught him for, uh, but he also says, I was one of the people who had set New York City on fire. And then he refuses to name any fellow conspirators, uh, which implies that he had been part of a plot to burn New York City. Now, all of this comes to us through a loyalist newspaper. Nevertheless, Abraham Patton was clearly a spy for the Americans, uh, for the Americans. And what's unclear is, was he a saboteur for yeah, the Americans and, as well? Yeah, and that brings us to, I guess, kind of a technical point, because Patton makes this confession on the gallows, but he's charged with espionage. And then we have people the British caught in the act, and as you say, they were either bayoneted on the spot or uh, thrown into a burning building themselves. Because of those things, nobody is ever actually charged with this fire. Right. I mean, look, New York City doesn't have any civilian courts anyway, right? It's under military justice uh, for the remainder of the war. Uh, the, the, British, uh, the British do imprison at least a couple of American officers who they accuse of having set the fire. Uh, one is from Connecticut named Amos Fellows. He dies in prison in early 1777. And another uh, man who spends almost 18 months in prison uh, is, is Abraham Van Dyke, a New York City tavern keeper. Uh, and he is um, he's 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 left in pr prison by the British for many months for also having been somehow involved in setting New York City on fire. And this was such a fear. Again, not only were there rumors that this would happen, the fire chief in New York was so afraid somebody would start a fire, burn the city down. He buried his valuables. 
Yeah. I mean, again, especially after the British take New York City, you know, the rumors had been going on for months that the Americans would burn it. And it starts to get really, people start to get really worried in the days before the fire actually happens, uh, that there are Americans skulking about and that they're ready to do this at a moment's notice. Which brings up Nathan Hale, inevitably, because this is one of the most revered figures of the revolution. This is the man who probably did not... uh, hate getting things right in history, probably did not ever say, I only regret I had but one life to live for my country. Nevertheless, there were these stories that one of the things Nathan Hale was hanged for was helping to burn New York City, as well as being a spy. But he was arrested in Queens the day before the fire started. No subway in those days, so it's not like you can quickly get in and quickly get out. Um, how, How likely was it that Nathan Hale had anything to do with the fire? Yeah, it's not clear to me that Nathan Hale uh, would, would had gotten to would have got, been able to get to Manhattan in time to actually be involved in the burning of New York City. It seems that his mission was really more to gather certain kinds of intelligence. Uh, there's also been a suggestion that the fact that he was hanged the day after the fire meant that the British had made him a scapegoat; that they were so angry about the burning of, of New York City that they that they hanged him out of spite. But I don't think that's true either, because the British had rounded up a number of other prisoners in the city who they did, didn't then hang. Um, and so it could just be that because Nathan Hale confessed to espionage, uh, that the British felt, you know, that, well, okay, this is what we do with confessed spies, we hang them. Uh, and that it really didn't have much to do with the fire. I, I haven't really seen any evidence uh, explicitly connecting Nathan Hale to the fire, but that has been a theory that some historians have been interested in. We have a lot more information from Ben Carp about the Great New York Fire of 1776, and we'll hear that Coming up here on the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. We're back with the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. We've been talking with Ben Carp, who has written a book called The Great New York Fire of 1776, looking into one of the great misunderstood and not much written about incidents of the Revolutionary War. Was it set at many different places by saboteurs? Uh, Was it hard to alert people or put out a fire? Why did this become so big? I mean, the answer is yes to all of those things. On the, I mean, on the one hand, the British report that the fire did start in several places at once, implying that there was a, you know, that there was a conspiracy or a plot of uh, of arsonists uh, laying in wait at various points in the city and setting different parts of it on fire all at once. So, if that's true, and there there is some evidence at least suggesting it, then that would explain how the fire started. But in terms of how the fire spread, uh, yeah, I mean, most of the civilians were gone, most of the firefighters were gone. All of the church bells had been removed, right? Uh, so, so you couldn't sound the alarm. Uh, much of the firefighting equipment was damaged, uh, and the and the wind was high, uh, and blowing wooden shingles off of the roofs of these houses, and all of that makes just twenty percent of New York City go up in flames. What was life like in Manhattan during the British occupation? I mean, for anybody who was left behind, or was it mostly just a British army town during that time? I mean, it is a British garrison town, but of course you need civilians to run things. And New York City actually becomes a magnet for loyalists and also for fugitive self-emancipating slaves, right? Who wanted to take the British up on their offer of freedom in exchange for serving the British army. So New York City does become populated with lots of civilians in addition to 
members of the of the army and the Royal Navy. So, you know, life in New York City during the war uh, was definitely hard. There were moments of scarcity. Uh, there, you know, there was corruption among some of the British officials. You, you know, there's plenty that you can read on the difficulties of the British occupation. But look, I mean, that occupation went on for seven years. People adapted as best as they could and, and made the best of it. And I'm curious, with the slaves who managed to escape their masters and and get to New York City where the British had said, you know, hey, you're going to be fine with us. You're emancipated. When the British leave, do they take lots of former slaves with them or did they leave them behind? They do take lots of them, uh, lots of them with them who evacuate to Canada. Uh, some of them will eventually make it to Sierra Leone. Uh, but this is one of the things that makes Guy Carlton look like a, a, a pretty good figure in American history. Washington uh, meets with Carlton and says, hey, you know, you'd better return all of these fugitive slaves to their masters. And Carlton says, no, I'm not going to break faith with these black people. They came to us with a promise of freedom, and we are going to honor that, proce- that promise. And so there, there are uh, hundreds of, uh, of black people who, who, who evacuate along with the British, uh, and many of them resettle in Canada and elsewhere in the British Empire. It's a fascinating story, and I've never read it as detailed as it is in your book, The Great New York Fire of 1776. Benjamin L. Karp, I thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. You've been listening to the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio, produced by District Productive with Paul Woody Woodhull and assistance from Hunter Sense. I'm Gil Gross. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Wondery Plus.